Pierce Brosnan ignites the screen in his first adventure as the unstoppable James Bond. When a powerful satellite system falls into the hands of a former ally turned enemy, only 007 can save the world from an awesome space weapon that, in one short pulse, could destroy the Earth. Making its premiere in Los Angeles on the 13th of November 1995 and opening first in America on the 17th and a week later in the UK on the 24th, GoldenEye is the 17th James Bond film and cost $60 million to make but brought in 350 at the Worldwide Box Office, starring Pierce Brosnan, directed by Martin Campbell. We'll hear from him again later. The vital statistics are Conquest 2 Martinis 1 kills 12, Bond James Bonds 1. Back in 1995, Variety said, James Bond is definitely back in business with GoldenEye, among the better of the 17 Bonds, and perhaps more important for today's audience, a dynamic action entry in its own right. The first 007 adventure in six years breathes fresh creative and commercial life, into the 33-year-old series. So to debrief GoldenEye this week, I am delighted to be joined by Sean Longmore, Dr. Lisa Funnel, and Phil Nabil Jr. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Oh, I'm going first. I never go first. Hi, I'm Sean Longmore. Um, I do, I'm a graphic designer. I do pretty pictures, sometimes Bond ones. I like Bond movies. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate dean, award-winning author, and media educator who specializes in gender in James Bond and other action films. This is Phil Nobile Jr. for Frangoria Magazine, uh, coming to you more virus than host this week. Uh, <laughs> forgive, forgive, forgive my sluggishness, and please don't mistake my sluggishness for anything less than uh, outright enthusiasm for Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. Perfect. So we open these things as we always do with the one with. What's the one motif that you can associate to Goldeneye? What would you put on the poster? If you closed your eyes, what's the first thing you think of when you think of Goldeneye? How would you explain this film to an alien? Goldeneye is the one with. Um, uh, I, 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 I've got a really rubbish sentence that doesn't really work as a sentence, but um, I'd, and maybe it's a cheating answer because you can't put it on a poster, but I'd say it's the one with rebooting. And in a way, I wouldn't explain it to the aliens. This is the one, if I had to pick a James Bond film, I would probably show them this one. I think it's mm. arguably, possibly the most accessible jumping on point for the franchise. And um, I'd say it's probably the <gasps> biggest Goldfinger? reboot. Not Goldfinger, no, no. I think that this one is, everything feels fresh and new and this is a great place to start. And that's what comes into my head. Like, hmm. easy watch. I would so, say it's, it's a jumping off point if we go by the bungee jump at the beginning, just throwing hey, down hey, the hey, hey. again. <laughs> I, but I think you're absolutely right that this one is a reboot, a refresh, you know, bringing Bond back. And it was that question after six years, like, do we need James Bond? And this is a film that emphatically tells us, yes, we need James Bond. And here's all this action and this exciting star, um, you know, saving the world. And I think it is a really great one if you want an entry point. And so many um, people of your generation, Sean, I know... Mm -hmm. That Calvin um, has talked about this as well. You know, the these Brosnan films were their entry point into the world of Bond, and they got excited about it. So there's something to be said about this film really just pushing it forward. Yeah, I agree with Sean. It's it's <clears throat> it's uh, it's an answer to uh, a six year old cliffhanger, and uh, it's it's. I think we talked about it on uh, the License to Kill episode. This is this is where you can split the franchise between 
past mm-hmm. and present, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the beginning of the modern era of James Bond, and there's no denying that. And there's no denying that it was uh, a resounding success in that regard. And it literally does give you the past and present. Like, literally, that's the structure of the pre-credit sequence, right? Like, here is the past in the Cold War, and then here is the present. The world has changed. And I think that's a very smart way to enter into this, to even just identify that six years. It's recognizing that there was a gap and placing Pierce Brosnan in sort of the before and after phase. So I think it's Mm. a very smart um, jumping off point or starting point for, you know, the Brosnan era moving forward. I was going to say, I always saw that as a bit of a, 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 a poke at Dalton because they say, you know, how many years is it ago? And it's like, uh, Dalton was bond during this Brosnan pre-title sequence. (laughs) 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 What's going on here? I think I think it's interesting. Actually, I'm going to change my sentence then. Thanks to what you just said, Lisa. Is I'm going to go. This is the one with change, huh. because it, it is. That's the. It's kind of the theme of the movie, isn't it? Um, that comes out behind and yes, and also behind the camera because we had a change in the producing team. Obviously, mm-hmm. with Cubby Rockley retiring, we had mm-hmm. a change in the writing staff. Um, a lot of the old guard left after license to kill or as i think it was a variety of the hollywood reporter said the bloodbath day when glenn got told he was let go and everybody else was told they weren't coming back um so it's a bit of a clean sweep there were some survivors obviously like uh, peter lamont and, and mm. stuff but um a lot of new faces on the bond family starting this film but th- this film did go through some development um with michael france writing it and then it, it banded back and forth a few times mm-hmm. um with a younger, with an older Trevelyan in the original script. Yeah, wasn't he positioned as sort of an XM or something like that in the sort of yeah, script? Yes, they wanted Anthony Hopkins to right. play Trevelyan. And yeah. then, of course, they wanted Anthony Hopkins to play Alec Carver. And, so, <laughs> <laughs> and then Anthony Hopkins went to play basically M for the Mission Impossible franchise, didn't he, around this time? So, yeah, for yeah. Mission Impossible 2, that's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, that is that's John Woo's Mission Impossible film, isn't it? It's the one that nobody yep. likes. Yeah. Yes, oh, because I, th- I, I think it. <laughs> I think we'll was it John Woo originally approached for Goldeneye and turned it down? Yes. So we dodged a lot of bullets there, didn't we? Uh, in slow motion. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Lisa, what's your the one with? Uh, mine would be in honor of my dad who loved this movie, the one with the tank. And so for me, one of the most iconic scenes, iconic moments of this film is when James Bond uh, uh, takes over that tank and he is driving through this city in Russia chasing after a car in the kidnapped uh, Natalia Simonova. And there's so much chalked into this scene that, that I'd like to unpack. First of all, you have James Bond and how he's represented. He is there in his suit, his classic suit, but he doesn't mind getting dirty. Uh, you see him at, at different points, either being sitting above with his head outside the tank um, or going down below when he has to seek cover. There's some really great shots of his eyes throughout this movie. There's a lot of close-up of his eyes. But there's a great shot where you can see the light illuminating his eyes while the rest of him is is in in shadow, really sending the message that he's serious. He's he's a Bond who's going to be serious in terms of his intent and purpose. You also see him crashing around in this tank, um, and and you know when we were commenting before about 
sort of the old and the new, you know, Bond is really literally <laughs> like resurfacing um, the face of Russia by really going into different buildings, destroying infrastructure, pushing um, cars around, driving his tank through the Perrier, which I think is probably the best moment of the Perrier cans, flying everywhere, taking out a monument. And when you think about what monuments mean, it's a pretty significant moment. A monument is there to remind you, say, of the past. Usually it's some sort of military past. And Bond literally just drives right through it and he becomes part of the tank and he utilizes it as a weapon. And then there's that great scene where he he does something and then he's going to change gears and you see him do the thing with the tie, which is Bond's, Pierce Brosnan's signature move as Bond, showing us that there's mm-hmm. that sense of style, but also that sense of humor that we can get. And so for me, this scene alone tells me so much about Pierce Brosnan, who he is as James Bond. He's serious. He's got style. He's got a bit of mischievousness in there um, and some wit. But at the same time, he's probably going to be one of the most destructive James Bond. That infrastructure doesn't seem to matter. History doesn't seem to matter. It's a new world. It's a new Bond. And he's there to just literally drive drive a tank through it. Nice. That was good. Mm-hmm. That was good. It's a good scene. And included in pretty much every Bond video game since. There's a tank <laughs> level. Thanks yep. to that scene. Yeah. Phil, what did you have? Uh, I just thought of it now, so bear with me because I'm still forming my thoughts. But the uh, it's the one with the sexist, misogynist dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> and what, I, what I what I mean with that is that <clears throat> you know we every new Bond that we get now they talk about how oh this is going to be uh, this or the Me Too Bond or the the you know it's going to level the playing field and it's going to be women who are just as up to the task as Bond is. But I think that what gets lost in the shuffle is that in 1995. They reinvented boss, Bond's boss as a woman, yep. and it was so seismic and so impactful that they did a complete reboot of the franchise and couldn't shake this character for three movies and change. <laughs> you know, I think that she had to kill her off, didn't they? They had to kill her off, and she still showed up in the next one in the final <laughs> video. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. It was Inspector. You know, it's a blur. Yeah. But the um, but that was such a cool move and such a such a. Uh, a progressive move that kind of called it called itself out with that one scene where she calls him them sexist misogynist answer and then kind of got on with it. And I think in a way that her casting and her tenure in that role is more progressive than any of this other don't call me a Bond girl and I'm capable and all of this stuff that stuff that they try to sort of make a big show about where Judy Dench was just running the show for uh, I'm bad at math, but if you count Spectre, uh, her appearance like 20 years. It's pretty. It's pretty mm-hmm. cool and a pretty big shakeup to the thing, and I think that that trickles into other things uh, that make that make Brosnan's Bond maybe more progressive than Craig's in terms of like who he's up against and who he deals yeah. with the, the, the Bond women, even down to Xenia, the last the last great female henchwoman, you know, is in this film. Um, but I think that overall, when I look back at it now, now that we can close the book on Craig's. I think Brosnan had a more progressive run than Craig did. And a big part of that is Judy mm-hmm. Dench's. I agree 100%. You know, when people talk about the strengthening of women and this and that, I don't necessarily look at the the Daniel Craig era. I think about Judy Dench coming in and really telling Bond, you know, w- w- 
what she thinks of him because she has definitely heard from Tanner and everybody, you know, not liking her uh, being a bean counter and being called the evil queen of numbers and talking about sarcasm. If I want that, I'll go talk to my kids, you know, really setting up that moment and trying to establish herself as somebody new. And you see, you know, I think why they hired Pierce Brosnan is his, his reactions to Judy Dench's um, right, that he looks at her. It's his actions. It's 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 the reverence that he looks at her through. The same sort of look that he has with Q. He's got a great dynamic of sort of like grandfather son. You definitely start seeing this dynamic between Brosnan and Dench in these types of roles. But you see him being apologetic to it, and you hear these statements from a bunch of women across these films um, about empowerment, about sexual harassment. You get your first woman arch villain, the only woman arch villain. You have women who are action-oriented. You have someone like Natalia Simonova who is yelling at Bond, you know, don't just stand there, get us out of the, get, get us out of here. She's the brain. He's the brawn. You get the sense that Bond literally can't do his job without these women. These women are a central role of the action and not just a sidekick or a plaything or a window dressing that these women have substance and they have a reason for being there in the narrative, in the plot, that they're bringing skills, tools, and and necessary qualities. Um, and you believe in the partnerships. I actually believe that these are partnerships rather than some sort of sidekick hero dynamic. And it's coming in the 1990s with the rise of women in act, more action-oriented roles, the rise of them in, in Hollywood. And, and there's other traditions in other and other uh, cinema systems, right? The rise of action women to the forefront. And so I feel as though this film is right at the right moment. Um, and it's sort of this post-feminist moment to really bring and bring to the forefront these women. And when people talk to me about Barbara Broccoli and like Barbara Broccoli is pro-woman, I think about the 1990s and the representation of women in the 90s. And then I do have some questions and concerns about the representation of women across the Daniel Craig era and what that looks like, what that means, because there are some regressive representations. There's some positives, but there's also some regressive representations that I can't turn away away from. So I really like your point and and that what you said the sexist misogynistic dinosaur a relic of the cold war whose boyish charms and I could go on and on and on it's just it's <laughs> such an iconic line that it's it's something that's just been you know um uh, sort of incensed into my brain and I absolutely love that moment I cheer every time I watch it um and you definitely see though a softening when he leaves and she's just like you know I, I don't mind sending you to your death, but like, I'm not just going to do it just because. And she tells him, come back alive. And you see that leaders can be both strong and fight the sexual politics of the office, but also be empathetic. And I like seeing those two sides of her in that moment, that she's someone who generally cares about James Bond, but she's also somebody who's going to make decisions based on her own criteria. Mm. I, I think it's interesting that Dench, you know, got to introduce two bonds in different ways, right? So Brosnan came in as the relic, um, right? Yeah. yeah. Was maybe out of place in in the wrong time. Um, and then when Craig came in, it was the the plucky upstart that she promoted too early. And, you know, uh -huh. can you, you know, like, oh, gee, boy, howdy, I shouldn't have taken a risk on you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder how they're going to do the new one. Like, how are they going to introduce the new bond? Because... Is he going to be competent? Is he going to be um, framed as a current 
events yeah. person. They've kind of they've had two very strong ways of introducing the Bond character and M's relationship in the last two eras, and doing it three times in a row is going to be pretty tough. Yeah, and I think that their uh, their answer will be to downplay it and to maybe right. minimize that and not not lean as hard into it. M's going to be a computer. It's just going to come. They're just going to come up short. You know, if they, if they try to recreate certain dynamics or try to one up certain dynamics that were viewed as so successful, and I think Judy Dench's M is yeah has to be viewed be, as yeah. M powered by AWS. <laughs> but they might go in a completely different direction. We've had a series of white men play M, and then a return to a white man playing M, and we've had a white woman play M. And I look to some of the James Bond comics, and they have a black man mm-hmm. yep. in the position of M. I can see them going in that direction. Colin um, Salmon. Are you listening? Colin <laughs> Salmon. Right? Like, I think that there's there, uh, again, I don't think that they can recreate Judy Dench, uh, but I think they need to move past the typical archetype that has been there in the past. So I, I think they have their work cut out for them. But again, I think they have to pivot towards a new bond. Again, this idea that they did for this one, a new bond, a new world, a new time. What are we going to do? And how do we introduce him in a spectacular fashion? And I don't think you can redo what they did in Casino Royale. You can't just keep redoing that and playing that out. I think they're just going to have to start him on a mission and move forward. We'll see. So uh, before we get too much into that, we should talk about the Bond cocktail. Um, Goldeneye, as you said, represented a lot of change, but it also basically reset the formula, didn't it? And went back to the classic elements um, with slightly new twists. So we've got teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, bond, action, locations, dialogue. And if you can't think of something, we'll call it style. Which of these elements do you think is particularly important to this film and why? And it can be for a positive or a negative reason. I mean, I would love to talk about Xenia on a top um, mm-hmm. in terms of character. Um, Are we doing villains or women? What do you want to do with this one? Under? Can I do villainous women? because i think she's a very interesting figure who she is what she represents and the time period where she comes out and just to give a little bit of a backdrop you know i'm seeing the rise in the 80s and the 90s of sort of the dominatrix coming into pop culture and this notion of dangerous femininity um, and sexuality you see it in bad girl art which is sort of a phase in in the comic book world so google lady death and you'll know what i mean um and, and you see these overly buxom women with, you know, their hair that's impossible, their body shapes that are impossible, um, but they're very alluring and they're dangerous. And then you're starting to see in film sort of this influence. And I think Xenia Onatop is right in the middle with the red lipstick, the red nail polish, the dark makeup, the dark hair, that dress that she wears when she's the one who's smoking the cigar, not Bond. She's the one, quote unquote, with the filthy habit. And then you see the sexual dynamics with it, that she's a sadist who gets gains sexual gratification from not only just killing, but oftentimes killing um, uh, men. And I mean, she'll she'll, she'll go for uh, Natalia Simonova too. So, but particularly in this film, killing men uh, by uh, asphyxiating them uh, with her legs, right? Killing them in a very sexually suggestive way. And as the Canadian who died, Admiral, uh, he seemed to enjoy it, but other characters were not so happy about it. 
And it's interesting because you see this type of image that gets, in a sense, um, uh, adjusted and co-opted more into a positive form by the time the late 90s and early 2000s come along. You see Trinity from The Matrix. Um, you see the Underworld films and so on and so forth, that it becomes more of an action woman rather than a villainous woman um, trope, although minus a lot of the, the sexuality that is there. But I've always found her to be an interesting character who also dies ironically. When she's killed, you have the tree branch that sort of goes out and it looks like a pair of legs. And so she dies in the way that she threatened um, uh, Bond. She threatened to emasculate Bond. And of course, she killed a whole bunch of men. Um, and it's interesting, just as a side note, um, when we're talking about like the Matrix, I liked the the representation of computer culture and the fact that they used green lettering for it. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. when I think about the Matrix, the Matrix used, again, four years later, this this color green to code, um, whether it's the filters when, you know, he's tied into the Matrix um, or the coding um, of, of the actual keys. It's just interesting that the color green was utilized in like the 90s to code internet culture. That has nothing to do, though, with Xenia on the top, but I thought I'd throw it out there. <laughs> So did you know, Lisa, that um, Famke Jensen wasn't the first choice? No, who was? Apparently, a, a, I don't know, a German singer-actress, Ute Lemper. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name. She turned it down. She was offered what? it and she turned it down. Yeah. She did not go on to famous things because otherwise we'd all know who she was. Apparently, um, Martin Campbell saw Famke Jensen in rushes for Lord of Illusions and, and they basically cast her there and then. And I mean, she's pretty iconic in this role. I mean, when you talk about who you remember in this film, it's very different. Like, I mean, I don't think people are like, ooh, Alec Trevelyan. You know what I mean? They're like, ah, oh, Sean Bean's in another film and he dies. Um, but I think she becomes like really associated with this. And I think this was a great platform and stepping stone for her to continue on with her career. It's, it's interesting you say that, actually, because Xenia kind of hangs around the Bond franchise for a few years after that because she's mm -hmm. then a playable character in, I think, all the video games of the 2000s, in the, in the multiplayer section, at least. Yeah. 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 Um, and non, none of the others from GoldenEye either. Or maybe Boris. Um, Who also dies, ironically. I mean, the I am yes. invincible, and then there's like the cold, whatever, the dry ice version thing that happens, and he literally becomes invincible and indestructible, but... I mean, I mean, Boris is probably the other memorable character out of this um, as well. I think there's, there's something to be said there about this movie, though, is that um, everyone is written really well. Every character has a lot mm -hmm. to do and has a lot um, of depth to them. Um, we, yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the Octopussy. Uh, no, sorry, Living Daylights one, where we were talking about, well, Octopussy, Living Daylights, and Golden Knight is very similar in the sense of that there are, there are multiple villains in those films. Right, Octopus is very strong because Kamal Khan and Olaf have different goals in mind, but the same means. Right, which mm -hmm. is blowing up the airbase. Yeah, Living Daylights. You've got two villains. I don't know what they're trying to do. Make some money, maybe do different things. It doesn't work. Right, the Goldeneye. You've got Oromov working with um, Trevelyan, and they both, you know, want slightly different things, but they work together as dual villains mm. yeah you throw Xenia in this and boris i mean i think goldeneye works at, in terms of like this the slate of having multiple villains i think goldeneye is probably the best scripted bond film because they all have their own motivations backstories you know um grudges alliances um and it all works 
And even I would say Natalia is well-written. I mean, you have the beginning of the movie, but then you see the scene where she's introduced, and that's almost like a second beginning. That's a second beginning of a character and her background and how she becomes involved. And so you see a, a balance of all the lead characters. And then, of course, we've already talked about M being introduced, and Q has a really great scene. They're just, it, there's a strength. as well. Yeah, and, yeah, and she also has a great scene. Like you know, I've come from the 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 opera, the theater, something like that. Like, what makes you think that I'm sitting around pining for you? Like, it's such a strong cast, and it's such a strong character um, grouping that I don't think I don't think any of the other Brosnan films really match up. So I think of you know the one with Electric King. She's great, but some of the other characters because she's so well written. Right kind of fall to the wayside, whereas there's a certain character balance in GoldenEye. And that's something that I just really want to push forward when we talk about action filmmaking, that it doesn't take away from a leading character and specifically a leading man when you actually develop the rest of the characters around. Instead, what you create is a far more engrossing film where we can be connected to a variety of motivations. Um, We see these 3D characters, and then we better understand we can cheer for them, we can dislike them, we can feel sorry for them, but at least we're having emotional connections to them, and they're not just, you know, these, these pieces of scenery. And so I think and I has a really great balance um, that not all Bond films actually have. Yeah, I I think you could say that as well about there's also like little characters like Jack Wade and um, Michael Train's character. Yeah, And it's kind of like none of the characters in this ever feel like stereotypes. Or, or at least not to me. Like it, none of them feel like they've been written to be a certain. Like Sean Bean isn't someone that just wants to maniacally take over the world because he's mm-hmm. evil. And say Robbie Coltrane, he's a mob gangster, but actually he's kind of got some heart, and he's kind of he's kind of funny. And everyone kind of goes against what you typically expect their character to be, and what you probably in some of the late later james bond films we've had that their characters would have been um no one's kind of there just to tick boxes there's some personality Mm -hmm. to every single character Mm -hmm. and purpose yeah the purpose uh, beyond the individual characters that the the collection of them what it's doing is it's resetting the world of bond which i think had kind of become a little watered down a little diluted by the time you're in license to kill there's like an entropic effect of of you know is this james bond's world anymore is it just even his world anymore and it and i think a lot of people felt like that stuff had been lost so that all of these characters being kind of colorful being you know like dialed up a little bit more than than maybe uh you'd expect or or more than they were able to sustain in in uh in subsequent films um it's it's helping that reset that that was so crucial that like this if this if this didn't hit this was the end of the franchise right like this yep. was its yeah, this was its hail mary mm-hmm. the stakes were the highest they've ever been yeah. exactly and so I think that all of those characters being uh, written and directed and performed the way they were is 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 feeding that it's feeding the the global reset like letting the audience know the world that they're in which is uh, something that I think the new films need to start remembering. Yes. Mm. It's also worth what you're talking about the, the risk. It's worth mentioning, and we said in the intro, the budget was only sixty million for this film. Which goes to show that, you know, the studio was hedging a little bit. They weren't all in on this. Um, and then when it proved successful, Tomorrow Never Dies, they doubled the budget. <laughs> and I don't think Tomorrow Never Dies looks twice as an, as an expensive film as Gold No. No. Mm. I don't think that it looks twice expensive either. 
Alrighty, uh, Sean and Phil, what ingredient would you like to pick out? I've got a positive and a negative for you. All right. Ooh. Uh, great theme song, terrible score. <laughs> and I think I think it's part of my hang up with maybe even the entire Brosnan era that it kicks off with this film that just has this ill-fitting score that does mm. not feel correct to Bond to me. Um, and and the score feeling off is compounded by the fact that I think this is maybe a top five Bond theme. I really love this Bond theme. I think it's perfect. And then the score that follows it is a uh, whiplash-inducing uh, pivot. Uh, uh, okay, I'm kind of biting my lip here, Phil. I think we're on opposing teams. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's on. Let's fight. Um, I, I adore this score. Um, I think Ooh. it's such a bonkers little oddity, and you've got Eric Serra coming in and kind of being very young and very brash and kind of being very experimental, which doesn't always fit. And I think if you'd have got him to do any other Bond film, it wouldn't have worked. But there's something about the music in this film that I think just suits Goldeneye. It suits the whole post-Russia sort of theme, those sort of low chimes that play throughout. Um, that are very kind of synonymous with. Um... <laughs> okay, yeah, the, 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 the car chase is a little bit. It's, that's a tough you know, sell, and, may, and maybe if that was maybe if that was buried an hour into the film, it wouldn't stick out as much. But it's yeah. like the first scene out of the credit sequence. I, I don't know. It, it's it, it jarring. Kind of, it's just I. I feel like it. it it makes the film feel so contemporary to the nineties. And I love that. It kind of really sells really? the setting. Like it, it feel it feels like it's dated. Like to watch now you kind of go, Oh dear. But it, it it fits in my head at least. Like that's what the nineties were. I don't know. I was I was around for all of it. But Wait, how old are you? Wait, were you even alive in ninety five? <laughs> I, I, I'm the same age as this film, so Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. But I I, I, I don't know. I, Sorry, Lisa. No, no, go ahead and continue your, your point because I'm going to disagree entirely. <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> I, I just, I love this film. Uh, I, I, I love the score. It, it just, I don't know. There's something that suits. I can listen to it. It's great. It's, it's fun. Oh so, I, I want to clarify. I want to clarify that I do not mind a dated Bond score. I really like Bill Conti's score for for Your Eyes yeah. Only, for example, <laughs> yeah. and I and I really love Marvin Hamlish's thing. But you said the word experimental, and I, and I think you know it's, we can split hairs, and I can get like pedantic about it, and and I'm about to. But um, <laughs> the, the I I mean Lars von Trier is where I go to watch experiments in film. I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want my Bond films to experiment to this degree. And for the same, and I think there's a tipping point. It's personal for everybody, but you know, for me, like Jack White's Quantum of Solace theme song is a breaking point. Like that, that just yeah. didn't work for me as a Bond theme. And I think you can dick around, and you can play, and you can push the envelope and bend. But when you break it, I feel like I know it's a hunch-based thing. Let's, let's not forget that they went down this, they, they tippy-toed towards this for no time to die and pulled their necks back in and said, you know what, forget it. Yeah, I know. I wonder what Romer's score would have sounded like. Yeah, 
here's here's the thing though like not a fan of the score i think it's terrible but (laughs) the one thing that i like about this this is gonna sound so bad the one thing that i liked about the soundtrack at the beginning was that there was no soundtrack and let me explain you know when you see how the film opens it's basically bond running uh we don't actually see who he is which i think is a brilliant opening we don't see pierce brosnan's face for the first three minutes i timed it i watched it um and so we see bond running and then we see him jump off of you do the bungee jump off of the dam and it's absolute silence and for me that was like punctuation like it was punctuated silence i typically would expect a sweeping score to tell me how to feel but instead the lack of score the lack of music the lack of sound just wind blowing made me perk up where i'm like oh my gosh i'm holding my breath so just like the wind is blowing i'm holding my breath watching bond fall down and isn't it Yeah. And it's interesting because I was kind of upset when he was driving the motorcycle and then jumping into the plane that there was some note that was playing. It was faint in the background. I'm like, get rid of that note. Do it again. Because again, it's that notion of of tension without music. If you're so um, um, used to music defining your actions and emotions, sometimes removing it for a couple key scenes actually makes you uh, more attentive. It's like the, the Gina Carano movie Haywire. If you watch it, the action sequences are punctuated just by the the sounds of bodies hitting each other. There really isn't a musical score. And you're looking at mixed martial arts and it's so violent and brutal because there is no music. Instead, it's just people beating the crap out of each other on screen. And there are these moments when silence can be used effectively. Now, this helps because I don't actually like the rest of the score. So it was like really, really nice that it wasn't there. And I do like some of the sounds because some of the music that's played reminds me of the video game when I used to play it. But, you know, to go to Phil's point, there is something lacking that by the time I hit Tomorrow Never Dies, I'm so happy that David Arnold is there because it just even from the pre-credit sequence, the music makes me think this is a Bond film. And just given how iconic music has been in defining the world of Bond. I find it interesting that in repackaging the world of Bond and filling it out with characters, right, and action, you know, and spectacle, that there isn't a musical component that they included to really just, you know, complete that package. But again, Sean, you know, if this is your cup of tea, I'm glad you enjoy it. But I did enjoy the silence <laughs> that was there at the beginning. I did, I it's, the note, it's the notes that Eric Sarah didn't play that you like. <laughs> Those are my favorite. I don't know. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe I'm just as like I I don't know. I I like synths, so maybe that that kind right. of rings home with me. Um, I don't know. I I, I love Eric Sarah's score for Lay on the Professional, which is very similar to this actually. And mm. and in fact, I think the experience he, he of love Thomas Newman did he? is well. The experience of love, I think, is actually a tune from Lay on. I think it's kind of reused a, the sort of general melody of that. Mm. Um, if I remember right. But it's interesting you mentioned the video game because I keep seeing recently all these TikToks talking about how good the music of Goldeneye yeah, is in the video game. The, the elevator music particularly, well, right? So why do why do a lot of people hate the music in the movie but love it in the video game when it is so similar? Hmm. Uh, inspired by, right? It, was, it wasn't a direct lift. Um, mm. So <laughs> just... For you, Sean, and our listeners, the three other people, the, the Doctor Who reference. Here we go. I do hate this score, um, <laughs> but I feel like Tom Baker with the two wires, Genesis of the Daleks. Like if I touch <laughs> these together, I could destroy this soundtrack. But 
we'd also be getting rid of that god the, the james bond motif on the drums the timpanis or the kettle drums or whatever it is mm-hmm. and that to me is like my favorite little bit of cue of all james bond music mm-hmm. so i'll put up with the 99 percent of the other stuff for that that little bit of hope it's the baby in this bathwater for you <laughs> right but they did bring john altman in to fix the tank chase Yes, which was right. done in like a weekend, wasn't it? It was yeah. written in a weekend and then recorded the week after. It was done really rushed. Yeah, but it, just it's to beautiful. Show if you know what you're doing, you can knock that stuff out. And for anyone out there, I think that likes the scores, I think some of that John Altman released on SoundCloud. So it's out there to listen to. It's not the whole yeah. track, but um, there's pieces. Sean, what's your ingredient? Uh, kind of style, kind of action. I, I just, in general, want to go with how the film looks. Um, I, I think. The effects in this movie are absolutely brilliant, and Derek Meddings, what a swan song! Like, yes. what a, it, it's absolutely incredible, and I really, I am so excited um, to see this on the big screen and to see the Seven Eye sequence um, because I and and so, and the train he did some of the train as well, but yes. I think it, it works so seamlessly. The miniature work is absolutely incredible, and, and it's and some of the best. Have, and we have a limited budget to thank for that, mm-hmm. right? And the time it was made, because nowadays it would either be CG or they would just go and do it big scale. Oh, well, it probably would have been, if they'd have had the budget, it would have been CG at the same time, because the first Mission Impossible was in production around the same time as this, and they the entire last sequence of that film is CGI. Um, and I think this looks miles better, miles more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, as well as all that, the cinematography here is just wonderful. I feel like it's really elevated. Um, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous movie, and I also can't wait to see this in the cinema because I'm. You might know more than I would, James, but is this the new the 4K scan? Is it a new scan? Because I know Gold and I, in previously, the Blu-ray was the only one that was upscaled from DVD, so you get a lot mm-hmm. of DNR and smoothing. So this will be the first time we've seen it in proper HD format, proper 4K. Mm. Yeah. The the 4K version of GoldenEye that's kicking around, was kicking around the streaming services, whether you're on Apple or if you're on Amazon, uh, like last year, they actually made some tweaks to it. Um, there's a the, there's the bit where uh, Natalia walks down the beach, right, to go and see Bond and what he's thinking about his internal mm-hmm. monologue, and that is a very low, uh, sorry, a very long and slow crossfade, which is not that common in the Bond movies for them to do that, um, and they edited that out of that 4k version because it was very difficult to encode (laughs) that long crossfade. If you know how encoding works, it's like, that's like your worst nightmare. I mean, shy of it being raining in that scene. I mean, it was just, so they just, they just trimmed it out because it was too tricky. Um, Technology. So it'd be interesting to see Sean, if you see that scene in the theater, whether that'll tell you which version you're seeing is whether that crossfade is in there or not. And that crossfade. Well, I'm also kind of interested. Um, I'm curious because it's getting it's 12A rated here again in the UK. Um, and for anyone that knows Golden Eyes, well, I doubt it if it's 12A because I think that's what makes it a 15 on the home release. But I'm just curious yes. is that if they've done a new 4K scan, then why would they then trim it again? It just all seems very odd. Right. It's funny how Golden Eyes got the, this weird thing of having all these different versions kicking around and nobody mm. see. Well, like, what is the true version of Golden Eye? Yeah, is it the theatrical or is it what we got on home release? So the theatricals were different in the US and the UK too. Ah, US got the headbutt. 
Mm-hmm. Didn't they? See, now I'm confused. I don't. I don't know. As, as Phil reminded me, I was uh, like really small. You could you could fit me in a handbag, and then this movie came out. No, I saw it at the Prince Charles in London. I want to say in 2015, and I don't remember like if it was like uh, gobsmacked by the quality or whatnot. But what what would I have watched in 2015? Was that a 2K? That would have been the Blu-ray scan that Lowry did, right? But it was for Goldeneye. Um, that was the only one where they went back to the DVD and upscaled the DVD to HD rather than doing a brand new. Yeah, which is I mean, garbage. It didn't. It didn't look bad. I mean, I, I they were showing a proper DCP. 2015 wasn't that long ago. I don't think we were watching Blu-rays or DVDs back then in the theater. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. I'll compare my Blu-ray to the Amazon stream after this and report back. Crossfades and you'll, you'll have to try and spot some more <laughs> boom mics in the corners. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but no, I yeah, I guess that's sorry. That's my cocktaily thing. Is just how this movie looks. Um, I guess production design you can put in there as well. Wonderful Peter Lamont, who just done True Lies mm-hmm. before this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's they, they kind of had a, that similar vibe because of him, I guess. But let's everything... not forget they they had to rebuild Russia on the back lot because they couldn't film. <laughs> On location, and uh, yeah, I, ch- I challenge anybody to spot the joins of that sequence. Did, didn't some Russian news sites at the time, not well, mm-hmm. they wouldn't mean sites, papers, uh, report? Oh, that- no, there were early websites out, and um, we've got it saved off from like 96 or something when we found them. Like in, in, in Russian news websites, they mm-hmm. had like reports of the filming that the second unit were doing on location and the complaints about trying to break the sewer system with the weight of the tank, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that was all a real thing, and it was all that actually the back back lot at Legion. Yeah, which which of course as well. Also, bear in mind this film was on a tiny budget. They built an entire film studio to make it because Pinewood was filming uh, Sean Connery, one of the Sean Connery movies, but it, it was busy. So they built an entire new film studio, which is now Harry Potter Land. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the whole history of that studio has been kind of like erased by Warner Brothers. Mm. You won't find a trace of the word James Bond or Pete Lamont anywhere in the history of that. No. Mm. All right. Um, we're kind of dipping into these. Underappreciated elements. Um, I think all of Pete Lamont's work in this film. Uh, what thing, big or very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch Goldeneye? The score. <laughs> <laughs> Underappreciated by me. <laughs> the maestro. I have one. Um, It's something that I've always found really fascinating um, visually. And that is sort of the graveyard of the fallen monuments. Mm. So you see when James Bond is going to meet, um, not Altus, Janus, (laughs) like Altus, (laughs) is going to meet Janus for the first time. And he walks through, it's literally a graveyard of old statues. And when you think about where this James Bond film is is falling, it's happening after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? It's it's um, this 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 empire of the past, 
And so you see all of these statues that are broken down um, and he's walking through it and it shows us just how much change has happened. That this, when you talk about building a new world of James Bond, this is building a new geopolitical world of James Bond. And it's interesting that that is the place where Bond meets Alec. And meanwhile, Alec is not necessarily interested in the safety security of, of Russia. He's there just in order to take down another empire, that being, you know, the former British Empire. And so I've always found the graveyard um, to be incredibly interesting. Uh, the toppling the toppling of dictators. And, you know, when he talks about all the work that they've done, uh, this is really sort of the 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 visual uh, um, landscape of t- the type of work that they've done in the past and and that MI6 has accomplished this. And yet you have Alec turning around and wanting to do it back to MI6 and 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 the UK. So I've, I've always just found it to be like an interesting visual element that every time it happens, I'm like, you know, what are monuments? What do monuments represent? They're, they're typically there to remind you of past honor and greatness. You can talk about the whole conversation about the Confederacy and monuments in the United States. And feel free to Google when they were actually made. They weren't made right when, um, you know, uh, right when the war ended. They tended to be erected when there were um, issues of racial injustice, when there was segregation going on and these monuments were put in place in order to remind people about power structures. Um, And so monuments matter. It matters who you see in public spaces, all the time and all around you. And so to see this graveyard of, 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 of these, these monuments, these particularly these men who have ruled. And then of course, going back to my tank sequence of James Bond, taking one out in the middle of a chase, all of that to me is quite symbolic of some of the geopolitical struggles and the breaking down of the Soviet union. Um, but also, um, what MI6 does and, and part of their their mandate um, and also what the goal of, of Alec is in, in this particular film. So, yeah, Graveyard of Monuments. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful sort of visual metaphor. And I've always found it quite interesting with that scene that um, Trevelyan's kind of stood on the edge of the graveyard and Bond's very much in the middle of it. Mm. And, and they, their characters yes. each, whereas Bond's representing i guess he's a dinosaur he's a relic he's representing the old spy world whereas alex very much representing kind of the new computers modern that's and so there's a great juxtaposition there and again it comes back to that quote like you're a relic of the cold war he's part of that world and i think it's a brilliant point that you made like it matters where characters fall within the filmic frame and he's presented as being the relic of the cold war <laughs> literally walking amongst them and then alec representing you know this future and you get that future um in the next film when it talks about this sort of the destabilized world and the bazaar and all the weapons but the weapons are associated with different countries and it's showing us that you know these these physical borders that once existed are now gone and we have to worry about terrorism in in more of say a regional sense or independent actors that that the state of global affairs has changed and how we compete them changes but is this film also um and I do think the answer is yes saying yeah you know do we need bond do we need you know this 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 classic figure of the cold war you know you know the world around bond 
changes, but does Bond change all that much? No, we still need that James Bond. And maybe this is a good representation of, of still needing him um, to be able to walk through these places and spaces, because at the end of the day, it's his instincts uh, that always proved mm. to be right. And his tactics as well tend to be justified because he gets his man or gets the job done. Who wants to follow that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll throw in something. It's just <clears throat> an under underappreciated in only in that I think it's something that they did really well and kind of no one noticed, but it could have gone really wrong was, uh, how do I phrase it? The ascension of Pierce Brosnan in the role. Mm. Because if you think about mm-hmm. it, <clears throat> and, and, and I was thinking about this in the context of the way that uh, Craig has been sitting around for the last six years, listening to people talk about who should replace him. Um, You know, like it's an extended exit out the door. Um, But Brosnan got, uh, as we, everyone knows, cock blocked in, in 86 or 87 when, when he was hired for the role and then had to uh, honor his Remington steel television contract and couldn't play it. But the whole world knew that he was supposed to play him in 1986. Right. Uh, Except Curry. Curry swore otherwise. But yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in 1995 or 94, or maybe when they announced it, what you have is a whole world who knows that eight years ago, this guy was supposed to play this part and it could have really landed like a lead balloon. It could have been like yesterday's pizza, I think. Mm-hmm. And instead, it was faceted and presented and sort of unfurled so effectively that I think people were still really, really excited for this TV star, let's be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, to to take on the role of of James Bond. And I think that that was not accidental and that wasn't luck. I think it was really engineered in a very smart way. um, And it could have just gone another way. I'll caveat the TV star thing, Phil, with American TV star. Okay, so Remington Steel. Even... Remington Steel is not a thing in the UK. Yeah, you guys had like what Taffin. <laughs> <laughs> but Brosnan was more of a household name in the states than he was in the UK. Interesting. By a so, mile. Yeah. By a an, mile. Even, an even harder sell then, right? And yeah. um, I think that that's really, or, or maybe that you didn't have him. His awareness as a TV actor maybe helped sell him to the Brits as as the next Bond. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was wondering if like. In, 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 in somebody we all know's fantasy world where Henry Cavill is the new James Bond, <laughs> do, do you think they'd be like, no, oh, he missed it out on it last time. Isn't it great that he got it this time? Same kind of shtick. Well, the difference is that Cavill went on to play goddamn Superman for right. a decade. And I think that's the bigger stain on Cavill. Like he's, he's stepped on. Someone has licked that cookie and <laughs> you, you don't touch that one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's not even getting into the petty petty grudges of like oh he also did the mission impossible franchise and oh he, he also did man from uncle like he's been passed around like sloppy seconds I mean, or in this case sloppy fourths if yeah. this episode's not called lick that cookie i'm gonna be really upset. okay that is so good <laughs> So, but but so by comparison, Brosnan had, was like sort of put on ice. He just sort of sat around yeah. doing you know smaller projects for eight years, and uh, and that the heat wasn't off him, I guess is what I'm saying. And and just, just something I've been thinking about in the in the race to cast the next Bond, and everybody's talking about oh, what about this guy? What about this guy? And I'm like, well, that guy's not old enough yet. That guy will be too old by the time they start filming. There's so, it seems like such a minefield of like trying to get it right, and the fact that they 
they put him in mothballs and then pulled him out eight years later and everybody was like, hell yeah, let's do this. I think that's kind of an achievement. They always have a backup plan, right? Hmm. In this case, they don't. Sean, did you have, other than the score, did you have an underappreciated element? <laughs> um, a really simple one. Um, uh, there's not much to it, but I, I, I like the car. What? Yeah, I like the BMW, and whenever I see one on the street, I'm always like, oh, that's a James Bond car. I don't know. I'd, uh, there's something about it. Does, does that, though, undo its mystique if you could just like regularly see one? In the see, if you street? could see a James Bond car. But I, it's actually like, does that not mean he'll blend in really well in it? Because you could see one, so it would be a great secret agent. Well, yes. It was, I think Jeremy Clarkson dubbed it the, the hairdresser's Bond car, didn't he? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I I, I think it's probably mostly the reason I like it is because I had the toy of it when I was a kid, the Corgi one, and it had getting that toy as a child was so exciting because I didn't know what the gadgets were because you don't see them in the movie. So I didn't know it shot missiles and right. had, and I don't know what else it was. There was something mm. else in the Again, back. What a great, what a great, we don't have the budget. We'll just talk about them, whack them with a the newspaper and drive <laughs> off and not talk about them again. <laughs> Sean, I, I won't name him, but I know a, a showrunner of a, a sitcom in the States who Brosnan was his bond, right? He's the one he grew up with. And he legit went looking for that car and, and almost bought it as far as I know. Not not wow. the one in the film, but like, uh, a, you know, going into mm-hmm. like the, the, the auto shopper and looking for like that year and that model and trying to find it. And he found yeah, a couple. You, get him for ten, you can get it for 10 grand now. There you go. I mean, I, I, I got to say, I do prefer the Z8, the world is not enough one, but. That's still, I, I like this one. It's better than the Tomorrow Never Dies car. Yeah. The Is insurance right? salesman bond car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't often jibe in with my own suggestions on this. I just critique other people's. But I'm going to throw in this one, which is, uh, for me, underappreciated. And is, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but the technology in GoldenEye, mm-hmm. it's 1995. Nobody who works in movies knows how the internet works. No. Nope. In fact, they still don't. <laughs> Two years later, we have a script about a media mogul who just ignores the fact that the internet exists. Um, but here in 95, we've got production designers making complete guesses as to how any of this stuff works. And by and large, it's okay. It kind of holds up. There's some logic behind it. Have you know? Have- Sorry, have you guys ever seen any other movie where IBM was the, one of the sponsors and mentioned so much? <laughs> right. Um, but e- even like the way that they use the made-up tech to trace route Trevelyan to Cuba, right? I mean, nobody knew how that stuff worked in the, the script back then. They just said, oh, yeah, you'll just be able to trace it back. Well, yes, you can do that, and that's how that works. I mean, if Trevelyan had NordVPN, I mean, he'd have been all right. <laughs> but, it, you know, all these years later, compared to other movies at the time, I'm thinking of you, Sandra Bullock, in that movie, <laughs> this one actually holds up still. Um, so they had lucky guesses. But the other part of that whole, the technology holding up, was the whole EMP plot, which I thought was great. Yeah. But, you know, recycled from the greatest James Bond film, right? Um, the little throwaway line in A View to a Kill where they say this is chips impervious to EMP mm-hmm. or never want to throw a good, away, a good idea away. Here it is again in GoldenEye, you know, taking to the next level is actually a weapon rather than a defense. Um, the other side of that coin. So, you know, oh, GoldenEye, they, is, GoldenEye is based on the Russian plot from... Oh, they should have, snuck a, they should have snuck a Zorin logo on the helicopter. Right? <laughs> oh... <clears throat> EMPs were a thing in the 90s. Escape from LA's whole plot was about an EMP. 
going off. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that one, but. Yeah, but this was technology that was, dis- uh, the EMP effect was discovered in the 50s, I want to say. Oh, okay. And the nuclear test programs and stuff going on. Um, but yeah, I just want to say underappreciated the computers. The only thing I think that doesn't hold up on the whole technology front is when now it's a laugh when Natalia kind of like asks for four megabytes of RAM in the computers and the guy straightens his tie thinking, oh, this one is made of money. Tattoos <laughs> <laughs> have moved on. Um, Can we so. also like, again, I just want to add to this underappreciated moment, the fact that like, it's not just the internet, it's not just technology, but the idea that everyone's going to type with one hand, like you had the mm. one guy coding with one hand. And then in the yeah. next film, you have Elliot Carver typing with one hand mm. on whatever well, keyboard. Here's the other thing. Electronic bank transfers. Who in 1995 was e-banking? Not many people. That all came true, you know being able to fraudulently transfer money between accounts and an offshore shit is mm. um, pretty the prophetic. Pro- I was just going to say the prophecy mm. <laughs> right there. We, we do all type with one hand now. We just do it on a smaller screen. Yeah. Oh, that is true. Mm. Yeah. And voice prints to get into places. That's the that, thing now. That never works. Voice, right. uh, voice identity that never works. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, trivia. Um, would you like to share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? Um, shall I go? Yeah. Uh, okay, it's, it's, it's not... Um, everyone knows most of the GoldenEye trivia, so it's not really much of a fact or a trivia, and it's a bit more of a sort of personal thing. These are the good um, ones. So, for those who don't know, I live in England, um, but I was brought up... Um, actually, I'm going to... Change my voice. So I, I, I actually talk more like this because I'm from Sheffield, which is where Sean Bean's from. Um, <laughs> and Sean Bean is kind of like, he's a bit of a sort of local treasure. Um, we adore him. Uh, up from my school back at home, um, there's a, a chip shop that's called a Sean Bean chip shop. Um, <laughs> uh, g- genuinely, and you can order a Sean Bean special and it's brilliant. Um, and so, and obviously... We all talk a bit more like this, like my voice kind of changes. Um, and at, at the time, Sean Bean was absolutely massive, um, and he's a big Blades fan. Uh, and my dad's a big Blades fan, Sheffield United, so he kind of really liked yeah. him. And my mum really, really loved Sharp. And so when I was born in 1995... I they was were saying, yeah, yeah, bastard. Yeah, bastard. <laughs> Um, but, but so at the time he was massive. And so when my mum and dad were squabbling to pick a name for me, Sean Bean ended up being some influence. No way. And so I can't the name after Sean Bean. But this year I learned, and I, I felt a bit betrayed really, that Sean Bean's <laughs> name is actually a stage name. And his oh. name is Sean Bean, but it's spelled S-H-A-U-N. Not S E A N. And oh. so I have, feel like I've been living a lie for 27 years. <laughs> and that's my bit of trivia. That's awesome. Named after a Bond villain. Named after a Bond. Well, he wasn't, he was, be, well, I guess he was being a Bond villain when I was named because um, it would have been in production. But, um, but yeah, yeah, so that, that was kind of 
The the other options for names were not great. At one point, Spartacus was on the list, genuinely, and now we have a cat in that. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Demetrius and Spartacus uh, were the two top contenders before Sean Bean sort of gave them some inspiration. Wow. Well, now, Demetrius, you'd have been all right a few years later. There you go. <laughs> mm. oh, oh, of course. Yeah. Sorry, that took a minute to land. Huh? I did teach a student in my bond class one time who was named Mary Goodnight. So <laughs> just saying, oh, what? I was like, do you know? And she's like, I know who I'm named after. I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> just asking. <laughs> oh, you found the Sean Bean chip shop. Yeah, I found the chip shop. So if anybody's listening and they want to know, a Sean Bean special is called the Meat Feast and Chips. It's a large battered sausage, mm-hmm. donna meat, chicken meat, cheese, salad and sauce. And I'm guessing by salad, there's probably like a little bit of iceberg lettuce on it. Wow. Probably, well, well, very, very With sad chips. looking answer. Um, but for anyone that needs to know, it's up. It, it, if it's still there, it's up in Broomhill in Sheffield, uh, around the corner from King Edward Seven School, which is where I went to. So, have you ever had one of those Sean Bean specials? No, I don't like kebab meat. Um, but I've, I've seen people have them because you it used to get full with. Um, kids at lunchtime the sean bean chippy but there's photos all over of him in there with the owners um, and i think a lot of people in brown sheffield have like seen him out and about um you see him at the football quite a bit all right <laughs> follow we're, that lisa <laughs> we're supposed to top that <laughs> i was named after sean bean um I, I don't know this might be common knowledge but um so pierce brosnan this is another family thing i guess that's the tie-in so Pierce Brosnan actually hurt his hand before shooting uh, Goldeneye. And so he had his 22-year-old son sort of uh, be his hands for any close-up shots. So when he's pulling the handbrake in the Aston Martin, that's his son. When he's flipping open um, the glove compartment to reveal that chilled bottle of Bollinger, uh, that's his son. When he's using the laser to open... Um, after using the the bungee jump, that's his son's hands. Uh, cutting through the floor of the train, that's his son. And so they used his son as being um, his hand model or his hand double. And I thought it was very interesting that they used a family member to be as close to Pierce Brosnan um, as possible. And it reminds me a lot about um, not just um, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, but Alfred Hitchcock who mirrored Fritz Lang, who was this great German director who also... Um, had his images and his hands inside his films and he always thought of filmmakers not as being artists or auteurs or authors but saw them as being hand workers as being because he has a, hmm. he had a background in architecture and so he always had pictures of his hands because he saw a filmmaker as being you know like filming and and building a film piece by piece whereas we shifted f- philosophically away from that and it's more about the artistic side and so on but anyways i went full circle with it was pierce brosnan to his son which led me to hitchcock which led me to fritz lang and that is nowhere near the level of story that Sean just told us. So I will bow out. <laughs> no, that that's an amazing fact. I'm never going to unsee that now. Every time, every if you if if anyone listening to this ever ends up watching Goldeneye with me in the future, I guarantee I'll sit there and I'll go, "That's his son's hand now." <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> his son's hand's right there, right there. <laughs> every every close up shot, I'll be like, not him. <laughs> Phil, what you got for us? Okay, this is uh, it's not about potato salad. Sorry, good. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, everyone knows that this is the first film uh, where Bond wore the Omega Seamaster uh, at the beginning of a very long product placement relationship that continues uh, up into the current film uh, with, uh, with the watch company. Um, but in this film, it, it's the first time he wears one and it's a quartz model, which is unusual for Omega. They're known for uh, um, their automatics. But that quartz model um, made such an impression on a viewer of this film that his mom bought him one. Uh, and he wears it to this day and the mom is princess Diana and the son is Prince William. If you Google Ah. any contemporary pictures of Prince William and you take a look at his left hand, he's wearing the, the model watch from this film, the blue, the blue wave dial Omega Seamaster, because he was, I think, uh, 12 or 13 when this came out. And, uh, you know, his, his, they had those, you know, those royal screenings and whatnot. So he was there yeah. for that, and and Princess Diana went out and got him the watch, and he still wears it today. Wow! Well, just I just think, if they'd have left the headbutt in the movie, he he would have never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? If he listens to this podcast now, whenever he sees that watch on screen, he'll be able to go. That's not Piers Brosnan's hand holding it. Yeah. <laughs> now, who feels lied to? <laughs> right. <laughs> wasn't even the real James Bond wearing it. <laughs> Shit. Okay. Uh, I think I know how two of these are going to roll. Um, final verdict. Uh, there are no bad James Bond films, but there are films that we watch more than others. Um, does Goldeneye fit within your top tier, middle tier, or lower tier of James Bond films? Who wants to go first? It's not a, it's not a particularly agonizing decision. I, I put it at the bottom of my top 10, I think. It's a, it's a classic Bond. It's an important one in the history uh, for reasons we've already discussed. Uh, it's never less than watchable, even with its godforsaken score. And, uh, and, you so know, that's and, mid-tier then. If it's bottom of huh? your top 10, that'd be middle tier then, right? Is that middle? Yeah. I was round up to like 30 in thirds. Yeah, okay. So yeah, top, <laughs> of, the, top of the middle. Let's say that. All right. So what is, so, so tell me, wait, what would make it be in, how many do I need for it to be in the top? Eight. 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 <laughs> so, so seven or eight. Eight. Sorry, my yeah. PhD was not in math. Eight. <laughs> okay. It was in movies. Um, yeah, let's put it in the top. I mean, look, it is the the rebooting and rebranding of bond bringing bond to a new generation in the 1990s and yes the score is not my favorite thing but for me that's the only downside of this film it has strong women um in in, in a diverse and 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 range of different powerful roles it has pierce brosnan who i think um was born to play james bond and i'm so happy that he had this opportunity i think that he's charming and strong and mischievous. I love the action sequences. You see this film dialing up the action from the other films. He is the action-oriented James Bond, really matching and mirroring um, shifts in filmmaking uh, that are leaning more towards um, this this type of action spectacle coming to the screen. Uh, Not necessarily a hard-bodied hero, but one with a little bit more of a slimmer physique. You see the influence of of gunplay. Um, There's a lot of of sort of running, fighting, different dynamics in this particular film. Great use of technology. Still love the internet, even though like it's not necessarily the most accurate representation. Like, I'm going to send a spike. You know, and I'm like, what is this? 
but but putting all these things together, it's always an enjoyable film for me to watch. It's it's not one of those that I'm like, oh gosh, I got to get through this. But instead, it's something that always brings a smile to my face when I watch it. And every time I see it, I know that this is the reason why we still have James Bond today. Because if this film would have flopped, that would have been the end um, mm-hmm. of James Bond as, as a series, as a franchise. Maybe somebody would have tried years later, but we really wouldn't have wouldn't have had, in my opinion, the golden age, which was really the Pierce Brosnan era. Um, And specifically the first three films, but you want to know what? I will throw Die Another Day, throw it into the mix, because I think there's a lot of good stuff in there too. So I'm going to say top tier, now that you've explained the number system to me, (laughs) um, and I'm going to go with that. Good stuff. I love hearing Die Another Day get some love. That's made me so happy. (laughs) High five, John. High five. (laughs) Ah, okay. Uh, Well, uh, do you know what? Maybe if everything else in this film was as good as the score, it would be top tier. Sorry, it's just that's just since you all bash the score, I feel like I should defend it a little bit. Um, Yeah, it's it's top tier. I think Um, it's a strange one, Goldeneye, um, to kind of rank because. Like I say, I think it's really accessible. And I think if you were going to make a list of the best action movies, not just James Bond movies, this rightly holds a place on there. Um, uh, I think it's it's a really, really good movie. However, I just think it is so much of a reboot and so much of a refresh that it doesn't always give me the little James Bond tingle in kind of the same way that Tomorrow Never Dies does. So maybe it's not one I revisit quite as often. But that being said, it, it's incredibly well made and lots of people work really hard and it really shows on screen. Um, so, mm. yeah, I think it's top tier, but maybe, again, like you guys, kind of bottom of top tier. I very just, I kind of prefer Tomorrow Never Dies. Right. Oh, I like that opinion as well, Sean. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> Tomorrow Never Dies is like top of top tier for me. So <laughs> just throwing that one out there. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I think it's, Bond kind of, for me, it isn't massively Bond in this film. I think you could change his name and make him into uh, Action Man and you'd still technically have the same movie. He doesn't need to be James Bond. And I think that was the right decision at the time for when they were rebooting it. And I think it works. Um, I, just, I, I think that I think Variety cottoned onto that in their review at the time, Sean, when they said this, is a, this works as a standalone action film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And... It, it, it does hold its, it very much holds its own up against True Lies, which was the big action film at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't give me that same little vibe that the select few Bond films do where I, once it's finished, I want to go and read a Fleming or it just, right. there's just something that is just missing. And even though it's really, it's a five star film, I can't wait to watch it in the cinema. It's just, there's just a little spark that I think they've deliberately ignored. Rightfully so, but it's what I like in my bomb movies. Can I throw something out there? And this is an interesting thing. When you talk about this being an interesting standalone film, to me, this is the Martin Campbell effect. Because mm-hmm. when I watch Casino Royale, I think that is a good stand. Like, I think it's a beautiful standalone film. Anybody can watch it from start to finish and understand what is going on. And it's interesting that you describe this other Martin Campbell film introducing James Bond um, as being a good, solid standalone film. And so I think, you know, when I put where credit is is due, I do think there's a bit of the Martin Campbell magic 
that is that is really working through um both of these films that are very different in terms of style, but they're doing the exact same thing. You know, asking that question, do we need James Bond? Should James Bond be here? And bringing it. Now, whether or not you feel it's fully James Bond or The Spark, he still made a really solid film that then opened the door for a subsequent film to be made. And so, I don't know. I think it's just a really important film for what it did, both of those films. And so, shout out to Martin Campbell. Yeah, and... um come back mine <laughs> i mean that's really what i meant was like shout out martin campbell hey we need to reboot <laughs> got any ideas <laughs> it is it's, it's interesting actually we've not mentioned casino royale until now um I, I personally for me i think this is the better of the two reboots um to put them together um but i don't mm. know maybe this this appeals to the child in me a bit more than casino royale does mm. So if you're listening to this in the first week of August 2022, GoldenEye's back on the big screen in the UK and and go watch it. And uh, one of the reasons I don't like going to the cinema anymore is like people talking and audience interaction and stuff. I kind of like it totally silent, but you hereby have this podcast's permission that when you hear this music, you can totally go Everybody else in the theater will have a good chuckle and then we'll just move on. So <laughs> we will see you next week for Tomorrow Never Dies. So thank you, Sean, Lisa, and Phil. Thank see you. you. Bye. Bye.